0: Hello, my name is Lee Brillmeyer. I'm a professor of law at uh, the Yale University School of Law, where I teach various subjects related to international law. Uh, The topic of my lecture today is Cultural Relativism, the Basic Problem and Some Complexities. And I'd like to start by saying first thank you very much to the United Nations Audiovisual Archive of International Law, which has invited me to give this lecture. Most of us are familiar with the basic problem of cultural relativism. It's very simple. Typically, there's a human rights agreement, or a human rights norms that comes from some other source. And while its proponents think of this norm as being a universal norm, there are various uh, groups of people around the world who resist the enforcement of the norm, by saying that it's culturally relative, that their culture is contrary to this this human rights norm, and therefore it should not be binding on them. Um, What is the basic dispute here? Let's take some typical examples. There are disputes about the cultural status of the rights of women, about the rights of the disabled, uh, the right to a... I should say the alleged right in all of these cases, because I don't want to prejudge the issue, the alleged right to a democratic form of government. Any one of these norms might be said to be specific to a particular culture, and less traditionally honored in some cultures than in others. Now, I'm talking here about human rights, but this doesn't have to be a problem about human rights. There are other types of rights that can also give rise to cultural relativism arguments. For example, there are some cultures that eat whale meat, as a matter of course. There are other cultures that don't eat whale meat. You might have uh, an alleged right to... uh, right to the environment, or right for the protection of animals, that would make it uh, impermissible to eat whale meat, because uh, whales are large and beautiful mammals, because they're very intelligent, and so forth and so on. They're very important to the seas. And this norm might be resisted by saying that our culture has a tradition of eating whale meat, and so it's not improper in our culture to eat whale meat. But we're going to talk about human rights, because this is the area where the issue mostly arises, the question of a human right that is, according to its proponents, a universal right, while it's resisted in certain cultures by saying that, it's such in, that in their culture such a right does not exist. Now, I need to take an example um, that I can use throughout my lecture, and I want to take an example that isn't really a real example but is somewhat plausible. So, I've made up the example of a supposed right that your tax money not be used to support an established religion. There are some countries in the world where people might very well argue that such a right exists. I think the United States might be one of them where there's a right not to have an established religion that's uh, mentioned in the United States Constitution. But, of course, there are large numbers of other countries that do have established churches or uh, established religions. Um, they're scattered all over the world, and they have a good faith belief that their culture protects the religion that's dominant in their country, and they don't see why the tax money shouldn't be support supported so I think um, I think this is a good example that we can take. Um, I don't think that there has been much dispute about such a right existing. It's a little bit hypothetical, but maybe that makes it less political and more appropriate for discussion this afternoon. Now there are arguments about cultural relativism that really aren't very convincing. There's arguments on both sides of the equation that aren't very convincing. For example. You might simply say that there's so much variation in recognition of what rights people have around the world that it has to be culturally specific. Every culture you go to has a different idea about what rights exist and what rights don't exist. How could it possibly be that rights are universal? Now, on some level, this is very convincing. People who stand up for cultural relativism might very well be thinking along these lines. But if you approach it logically, it isn't as convincing as you might think, because it's possible to argue that all the other people are simply wrong, that your culture is correct, that your view of what human rights exist is really the universal one, and that the defenses of cultural relativism that exist in large numbers around the world because of this variability of uh, beliefs around the world, that these are all simply wrong. Now, how can you dispute that? Well, you have to engage in some kind of dispute on the merits. Is this a convincing right? Is it something that has some solid basis of some sort, philosophical or moral or religious or legal or something like that? And these arguments are very hard to win. And uh, so, as a general matter, you can't simply argue that cultural relativism is proven by the fact that there's a variability of cultures around the room. That's an argument that I would say is not very convincing. On the other side, you might try and argue against cultural relativism by saying that the whole idea of human rights is that they're universal human rights. This is what makes sense out of a human right, a right that people have simply because they're human beings. And if uh, these human rights are universal, then cultural relativism can't be a defense because cultural relativism would make them change from one country to another. This uh, is no more convincing than the argument that I just discarded a moment ago about the variability of beliefs around the world, because this assumes the very premise that it's trying to prove. It assumes that universal rights exist. Yes, it's true that if we believe in universal human rights, that the existence of a universal human right means that cultural relativism is wrong, because how could it be universal if it was relative to the particular culture? But that starts out by assuming that there are universal human rights. It's entirely possible to argue that human rights are not universal, that they're culturally specific, and that, therefore, cultural relativism is correct all along. So, um, I would... Uh, like to propose that we set aside uh, some of our instinctive reactions to the subject of uh, universality versus cultural relativism, because um, although we have very strongly held beliefs, these tend to be uh, irrational, based on emotion, uh, somewhat uh, not up to, to par in logical discourse, and in particular, I'd like us to set, try to set aside the idea that cultural relativists don't have any credibility because they're merely apologists for regimes that violate human, law, human rights laws. This is a very common belief uh, in some circles that the only reason that, um, that someone might raise a defense of cultural relativism is because cultural relativism gives them an excuse for doing things that are politically expedient or that facilitate stealing of public money by corrupt officials, or something like that. So, it's basically an ad hominem argument, and I'd like to try to set it aside. Yes, there are relativists that are just apologists for dominant uh, regimes that are violating the interests of the human beings that they control, But that doesn't mean that we can't do better in finding an argument. On the other hand, there's another stereotype that goes on the other side. It's sometimes thought that people who believe in universal human rights are totally insensitive to what other people actually want. So, the argument would go, you Westerners, which is the way it's usually made, you Westerners don't really care about the interests of the people in." Asia or uh, the developing world or the South Pacific. You don't care about what we actually want, because what we actually want is determined by our culture. What you care about is what you think we ought to want. And you think that free speech or uh, freedom of religion or uh, democratic elections... you think that this is what's going to make people happy, but you're just imposing your values on us. And furthermore, your values are being imposed on us because you have a history of oppressing us and of running the world, and that gives you the podium from which you can announce that you're right and we're wrong. Well, again, there are certainly people who fit into this category. There are some people who believe in universal human rights because they find it hard to believe that anybody else could be correct, anybody other than them, that they think that the things that they value are going to be universally good for all people. There are people whose... whose attitudes towards the subject are no more defensible than the one I've just described. But that's not the beginning and end of it. There are also people who genuinely believe in universal human rights, and believe that they'd be doing good for all of mankind if they enforce them. So, let's try to set aside these prejudices and instead look at some of the more complicated and difficult questions, because I certainly don't have a suggestion to make about what the answer to our question for this afternoon's lecture ought to be. I'm not going to suggest that universalist human rights are correct, and I'm not going to insist that cultural relativism is correct. I simply want to suggest that there's good arguments that ought to be taken very seriously on both sides of this equation, and that, of course, it would help if people tried to understand one another and not just dismiss each other's arguments on uh, grounds of uh, ad hominem considerations, like a history of, pr- uh, a history of oppression or um, uh, arrogance towards people that are different from they are. So, I would like to look now at the complexities that I referred to in my title. there's three basic um, subjects that raise complications in the debate between cultural relativists and human rights. The first one I'm calling the historical change argument. The second one is the symmetry argument. The third is the treaty compliance argument. And then, finally, I'll close with a fourth argument, Um, which is the extent to which cultural relativism actually would support human rights violations if it were accepted, because I think that may be overstated. So, first I mentioned the historical change argument. There are a lot of uh, human rights arguments that are made um, in, in today's world that involve changes in attitudes over time sometimes fairly recent changes in attitudes. Um, here, I want to refer to the people who propose to change human rights, to increase the level of human rights protections, as progressives. And uh, it's, h- it's hard to know what exactly to call them, but the reason I've called them progressives is because of they think of themselves as making progress. They think of themselves as being in the vanguard, of uh, furthering human... human interests around the world. So, um, I could... you can easily think of some examples. Uh, One of the ones that's very controversial, and we won't go into it as a substantive matter, is the rights of lesbians, gays, bisexuals, and transsexuals, which have uh, been changing in public attitudes in some parts of the world uh, to a very great degree over the last uh, 20 or 30 years. So, we might think of the people who propose to recognize such rights as uh, being in the... uh, being in a vanguard, so to speak, being progressives. And I want to continue to use my hypothetical example... excuse me... that I mentioned uh, in the uh, last section of my lecture, which is that uh, people believe... some people have come to believe that there's a human right not to have your tax money used to support an official state church. So, let's say that, uh, historically, this right has not been recognized, but perhaps uh, 10, 15, 20, or maybe 40 years ago, there started to be a movement to recognize that people had such a right, and it became dominant in some places around the world, And there were other parts of the world where it was not uh, a dominant... uh, it was not accepted as a dominant point of view. It was rejected as being culturally inappropriate. What are we supposed to think about this? Well, I would suggest that the people who are resisting the imposition of this norm as a matter of cultural relativism are entitled to point out that the rights that they... um, the rights that they are... the supposed rights that they are resisting were only recognized very recently, uh, in terms of the states that currently now adopt them. And why does that make a difference? Well, you can't really quite descend into total nose-counting. It's not the number of people who believe something or don't believe something. But it does seem rather troubling that over some very long period of time uh, in history, up until, say, by hypothesis, 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, the, the, uh, the entire human race believed that there was no such right, and now people in one corner of the world have decided that there is such a right, and it makes it seem as though these people, this small vanguard of people, are getting to impose their judgments on everyone else. Now, of course, it's entirely possible that everyone else is wrong and the vanguard is right, and the vanguard realizes that uh, that their country was wrong all along, throughout the entire course of history. This is entirely possible, but the more extreme you make the example in terms of numbers, the more problematic it seems to reject the culture of the vast number of people throughout history and around the world who do not believe that this right exists. Um, I don't know what to say, about ultimately, about this historical change argument, uh, but it does seem that there... that a claim of right is stronger if it's been adopted over some long... uh, point... uh, long perspective, in some particular uh, group as as a historical, traditional matter, it seems that that gives more of a a valid claim to try to impose it on the rest of the world. At any rate, it's something to think about. Now, a second um, complexity is uh, based on the same sort of factual problem. It's... uh, think about the situation, where, the, over a long period of time, there has been uh, no acknowledgement or recognition of a particular right, and then at some po- a point in time, some people start to believe this someplace in the world, and they, uh, being progressive by nature, they wish to uh, have this right recognized around the world. Um, they now frame their argument in terms of human rights, versus cultural relativism. And I want to suggest that, in addition to the oddness that I pointed to a minute ago about the historical change, there's another kind of oddness. Why is it that the people who are in the vanguard get to phrase their argument in terms of human rights, and describe the other people who are resisting it as cultural relativists? It doesn't seem to me exactly right. There's a basic symmetry in the situation because the cultural relativists are are able to say, well, our argument may be specific to our culture, but your argument is specific to your culture also. You claim that you have universal human rights, and you claim that we have the burden of proof of showing why the universal human rights should be overridden by our culture, but we see it the other way around. We think that our view is the universally correct view and yours is the one that's culturally specific. In fact, they might point out, so many more people believe our view than believe your view. It does seem that yours is cultural and ours is universal. Now, as with the last point, this is not to say that you have to come out one way or the other way. Uh, it's something to think about, and I think that it has to be taken seriously, because we do tend to put the burden of proof on the people who argue for an exception for uh, a specific culture, and the burden of proof is a very serious thing. You have to be able to establish the facts that you rely on, you have to make good arguments for why people should change what they already believe, and this is much more difficult than simply taking a position in the first place. So, I would say this second that before some group claims to have a universal view of what rights people have, that they should take seriously the, uh, the disagreement that their position is culturally specific to them and that they're trying to uh, use this culturally specific norm to defeat a universalist norm and that they should have the burden of proof. It's something to think about. Now, the third uh, example of a complexity that I'd like to raise might be called the treaty compliance argument. And that has to do with the effect of signing a treaty or a human rights convention on cultural relativist arguments, because the cultural relativists make a defense to imposition of a right that's based on the fact that they say it's contrary to their culture, that the right in question is contrary to their culture. So, how can they say this if they've actually signed a human rights agreement that recognizes this right? Wouldn't it be better to say that their culture may have had such a right at one time, but it relinquished that right, and it certainly relinquished its right to defend itself against imposition from the outside when it decided to sign the treaty. I think this is a good argument in many respects. Um, One of the reasons that states sign treaties and conventions is to change the law as it currently exists. It's entirely possible that they might have had a good cultural relativist argument at one point in time, but then when they sign this treaty, they've given it up. And uh, this is particularly true if by signing the treaty you agree to some kind of enforcement mechanism, such as uh, a UN body to investigate or uh, jurisdiction at uh, the International Court of Justice or something like that. It really does seem that you can relinquish your cultural relativism defense, and that signing a treaty has that effect. Now, I think this is a good argument, and it applies to a lot of cases where cultural relativist arguments are made. But you have to notice what the consequence is of making this argument. Think about the progressive who defends the imposition on. Uh, on on outsiders of this uh, human rights norm by saying, well, you signed the treaty, therefore you agreed to give up your cultural relativism defense. Well, he, he or she probably thinks that this is great, he's won the argument, and in the short run that may be true. But what does it mean if you rely on a treaty as a basis for imposing a human rights norm on another country? for pressuring another country to comply with the human rights norm. Doesn't it suggest that when they... the other country has not signed a treaty, that they really are free? That they really are free to disregard the norm? It seems to me that it has that implication. And that's an implication that not all human rights proponents are prepared to to believe. Uh, They want to have it both ways that if you do sign the treaty, that this means you give up your cultural relativism defense, and if you don't sign the treaty, well, you give it up anyway. That... that really can't be. Um, this is not as hypothetical as... Uh, as... as might at first seem, because there are a lot of countries around the world that are engaged in pressuring other countries to comply with uh, human... human rights norms, um, but who do so even though the other country, the country that's being targeted, uh, has not signed a norm in question. So, that um, a country that has decided not to sign a human rights convention finds itself pressured on the grounds that this isn't just a legal right, this is also a moral right, and so it doesn't matter whether you sign it or not. It's particularly interesting here for me to ask the question, what is the basis for pressuring another state into signing a convention that it hasn't signed yet? Maybe it's considering signing something, but it hasn't signed it yet. Well, you can't rely on a legal argument as a reason for pressuring a state to sign something that it hasn't signed yet. What kind of argument are you going to rely on then? If it's not a legal argument, what kind of argument is it? And the fact that the argument is really based on something that's not legal makes me wonder whether there isn't something also that's not legal that's brought to bear in those cases where the uh, country even has signed a human rights treaty and pressures being uh, brought to bear on the country there. Again, this is a problem that is just something to think about. It's not conclusive one way or the other. It's it's something that you might consider as problematic, uh, maybe soluble in some cases and not in other cases, but it's just a complexity to think about. Now, I want to make one final... um, Uh, example that I think is interesting, perhaps as a complexity, um, but also perhaps as a simplification, um, because I think it clears the ground of a number of uh, arguable human rights versus cultural relativism problems, and um, eliminates a number of cultural relativist claims, so that they don't have to be addressed. And that's that uh, there are some human rights that don't seem to be uh, opposed by any particular culture. So, here I'm taking, for example, uh, the human right not to be tortured, or the human right uh, not to be a victim of genocide. Uh, It's hard to think of cultures that genuinely um, believe in culture-specific approval of torture, or culture-specific approval of genocide. This is not something that... Um, culture, cultural examples easily come to mind. But what's the consequence of that? Because if we, indeed, cannot find in those particular examples if we cannot find examples of cultures that would uh, excuse violations on relativism grounds, then that suggests that there are at least some human rights that are universal, that perhaps we're focusing too much on the question of which human rights there are, which is a very important question, But it's not the only question. We're also interested in the very possibility of whether any human rights exist as universal norms. And I think if you look at these particular examples and focus on them, there's reason for optimism, that there is... uh, there is the possibility of universality in norms generally. And while we may disagree over which ones there are, and which are the ones where cultural relativism is more important, we can reach agreement on a number of important cases. So, I would like to say thank you very much for attending my audiovisual lecture, and goodbye.